Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're following the Gospel according to St. Luke, and today we're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It is um, it is the chapter in St. Luke where he gives us his version of the Lord's Prayer. And then he begins uh, to also then draw out the implications and the meaning of that kind of relationship that we have with the living God. It begins with, once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And so this is part of their understanding of a religious leader, and it should be part of our all of our understandings of religious leaders, is that um, religious leaders in some way tend to enable those who are gathered around them to be able to pray and to speak, therefore, beyond themselves um, in into the reality of the transcendent and the living God. This is part of the thing that we struggle with in contemporary Christianity. And it has to do with, with a great deal of things. Certainly, you know, we can, we can look back and say, um, wasn't, it, wasn't it great how intense the religious life was of people in centuries before us? And uh, we talk about the, the Christian era in, in, in the West. And, um, but what we began to discover as we look more deeply into these kinds of mysteries is that life generally was very difficult. The idea of somehow or other there being something better for us um, was a compelling idea and something that emotionally and psychologically um, enabled people to be a little bit freer of the contemporary world that they were living in and to seek some kind of peace, some kind of healing um, in, in the presence of a God who was all good, all loving. And so this very same thing is part of the missionary endeavor of the church. It is another example, of course, of, of the grace of God, of the truth of God being woven into the fabric of everyday life and every time and in every place. If we can go back to the high Christian ages of Europe, um, it, we, what we will find out, of course, is that they were people with uh, not even the rudimentary forms of medical care and pain relief and so forth. We have huge um, pain management clinics and so forth today. In those days, there were no such things, uh, living in a world that did not even have aspirin. Um, and, and so there was very little alleviation except in very primitive ways for the alleviation of pain. Um, we see certainly in, in images, even from the more contemporary times, even in our own civil war, what, um, what the process of amputation was and the excruciating pain and so forth that people went through without anesthetic and so forth. So basically, <clears throat> when we come into our own age and we find kind of fixes for so many things, obviously we still get sick, obviously we still die. But the process of getting to that death is certainly infinitely easier and less painful than it was 500 years ago, or for that matter, even 150 years ago. And so 
The idea now is that we are kind of anesthetized to the idea of eternal life because fewer and fewer people are finding it to be anxious um, to get out of the present situation that they're in, to get out of the present world that they're in. <clears throat> and And although... That certainly is not the whole story. It's part of the social phenomenon of the of the change in the social dynamic of religion in the contemporary age. Whereas before, it was all oriented toward the kingdom of God, like in the New Testament, oriented toward um, the coming of the Lord and the union with the Lord forever and eternity. And it is turned more and more... Um, and and so so many of the uh, works of mercy of the church, the corporal works of mercy of the church through the ages, we were the first ones with schools, we were the first ones with hospitals, we were the first ones with orphanages and so forth. We established basically the social welfare structure of the West for centuries, um, and uh, it took a radical turn toward the more civic in the 16th century, but still the church remained very very much the the uh, the origin the source and the venue of effective social services in the midst of of the west of western civilization and part of the missionary endeavor also was to bring that kind of care and so forth into the countries where the missionaries were sent today um the state has taken over most of that and then passed laws really which make it very difficult um for much of the charitable work of the church we find, for instance, in the conflict now with the gay marriage business, it becomes more and more difficult for, for us to care for orphans, for us to um, um, run adoption services and so forth. Um, it is the same thing, of course, with the charitable work of doctors and of hospitals. Um, it wasn't that long ago, probably in the 1970s, when legislation came that kind of forbade Catholic hospitals to provide free service and free care for the indigent poor. And, uh, and so gradually and slowly, that kind of work, and the result of it was that when we could no longer do the hands-on work, um, much of the Christian endeavor and much of the Christian um, activity turned instead then to the politics of reorienting civic society in such a way that those services could and should be provided. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is not my judgment to make, or, or whether all of this is something that should have happened, who knows. But the fact of the matter is, is that less and less, as part of the ethos of Catholic life, do we find people saying, gee, we ought to pray more, or we, we, this is about prayer, this is about a relationship with God, this is about acquiring uh, entrance into the kingdom of heaven, this is about, I'm not saying that does not exist within the church, certainly it does in a very powerful way, but there's a very strong current in the church, all we have to do is read ecclesiastical church news to know that there's great conflict between the transcendent and the imminent within contemporary Catholicism. And that that extends all the way from the Roman bureaucracy to the local parish churches and back again. So when, in fact, it doesn't strike us then as being as significant when they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Um, unfortunately, that is not necessarily the, the, the constant and overall and inclusive prayer of the Christian people, teach us to pray.
And yet at the same time, that is the foundation of the Christian life. Um, the, the sacraments draw us closer and closer into the living God and and uh, and in that there is a need for conversation, a need for a loving communication, something that goes outside of ourselves to the other rather than just being kind of a consumeristic sort of sociological phenomenon. So when they ask him to pray, as John taught his disciples, because this is certainly the reasonable thing for those who believe in a God to say to one of, to a teacher, teach us to pray. And so he said to them, say this when you pray. And then we have Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Father, may your name be held holy. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive one another who is in debt to us, and do not put us to the test. A very different version than the one we're used to. We're used to the version from St. Matthew. But this contains the same concepts, and honestly, it is a quintessentially um, Jewish prayer in almost every way. And, uh, and so it is not something that is intrusive into the lives of the apostles. It is something that in many ways um, connects to what they are already predisposed to do and to believe. There is an interesting piece, though, however, in the beginning of the prayer. And that is, Jesus uses the word Abba, Father. Um, while that is not foreign to Judaism, and while that is not foreign to the prayers of, uh, of the Jewish community, the intensity of the word Father is something that is seen as distinctively Christian. Because the Hebrew people saw the living God as, as a powerful God, in a sense as a Father, but never devotionally did they think of him as father. They thought of him instead as the living God. And so when, in fact, the personal name father is added to it, it's something that Jesus himself brings into the prayer. For Jesus, as we know, often turns to his father in prayer. And now he is inviting his disciples to do the same. And so that very distinctive and that very kind of uh, extraordinary intimacy in which we enter with God through Christ, that, uh, that we dare then to call him Father. We can only call him Father, not as individuals and not as someone who has decided to look for the living God, but as one who is united to Christ because Christ is the one who names him Father and Christ is the one basically, who is his son, and in a very intimate, real, and uh, substantial way. We even say in the creed, consubstantial with the Father, meaning one in being with the Father. And so there is a tremendous intimacy between Jesus, the, the, the Son, and God the Father. And he invites the disciples into that relationship. When we ourselves then begin to, that's why it says in the introduction to the prayer, we dare to say, um, how dare we call God our Father unless we do so in Christ, whose Father he truly is. And so it is an act of great trust and great confidence in Jesus Christ that we do have the capacity to address God as Father. 
you said, may your name be holy. And that is, that is a very, again, that's a very Jewish way of, of praying, acknowledging the holiness, the heavenliness, um, not meaning he is distant and abstract and not present, but that it is an aura of grandeur, an aura of greatness far beyond ourselves. The heavens extend far beyond the earth. And so the heavenly father is one who is far beyond the ordinariness of our lives. Our connectivity to him is through his son, and therefore it is through his son that we dare to call him father. And then, so your, may your name be holy. Um, and, and this, of course, praising the holiness of God. It's interesting that in the Eastern churches, uh, um, this is repeated over and over again in the in the minor litanies of their liturgy. Um, holy, holy, holy. Um, we say it three times in the in the uh, in the response to the preface of the mass. But it is it is a minor liturgy. It is a minor litany in much of the Eastern liturgy, um, in which they praise the holiness of God over and over again very much a part, very much a part of the, uh, of the, uh, the uh, Jewish understanding of the great ch- greatness and of the grandeur of the living God. Then he says, Luke's Gospel says, your kingdom come. Um, this, is, this is a prayer for the, for the coming of God's kingdom upon earth. We have already looked in, in, in past reflections upon the Gospels about the reality of the presence of the kingdom of God among us, for Jesus himself is the kingdom of God. And insofar as he is present to us in sacrament, in word, and in church, the kingdom of God is among us. But we know it is not fully among us, for for the world has not yet been brought to its consummation. The world has not yet, creation has not yet been brought to the point of in its fullness of its own time that it become then something that gives way to the eternity of the living God. So we pray for thy kingdom come. We're praying in a way for the second coming of the Lord. It's interesting that in uh, in Matthew's prayer it said, "Thy will be done," and this is a this is a powerful. Um, it is a, it is a, uh, derived from their, "Thy kingdom come." It is derived from that, um, but basically wishing God's will to be done upon earth. I recall in a discussion one time a great talk about. The prayer of abandonment of, of um, Charles de Foucault, and the radical nature of the abandonment that we should have to God was in the midst of the discussion was kind of a terrifying thing, because we know, for instance, that while God does nothing to us or with us that will bring about our damnation, but only that which will bring about our salvation. Not everybody wishes to so abandon themselves because we aren't sure. Look at the what what interesting what Jesus says to Peter at the end of John's Gospel. You will be bound and taken where you will would not go, in which he told the manner of his death. In other words, martyrdom could very well be the consequences of abandonment to God's will. And yet at the same time, while that prayer of St. Charles de Foucault 
is is in a way intimidating and and frightening. It's part of the Lord's prayer that we say every single day: "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done." That's what we're asking, and I think that this is why, for instance, I think it's it's a shame at mass sometimes we learn things by rote, and then we just rattle them off, um, and. Uh, and yet we should be reflecting on what we say when we pray, especially this prayer. This is the prayer Jesus gave us. These are the words that he told us to pray. And for us to rattle them off simply as a, uh, as a memorized trope of some kind is not necessarily something that is beneficial to us and something that really is um, in union with the spirit of the apostles who say, please teach us to pray. That's not praying, really. What we have to do when we pray is in our minds and hearts reflect upon what we say. Then it goes on, give us each day our daily bread. That's a very difficult thing, too, because the word, the Greek word that, um, that is used for our daily bread is a word that they don't know what it means. And, uh, and so what they, what they do is they translate it as daily simply because we don't know the exact meaning of the Greek word. Daily was the translation that St. Jerome found in uh, an old Latin version of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke when he began um, the revision and the translation that ended up as the Vulgate Bible. But there is a question as to what it means exactly. And there is a difference of opinion as to what it might mean at all. Is it a prayer for daily sustenance um, in our earthly lives? Or is it a prayer for the bread of the Lord. In other words, is it a prayer for the reset to the gift of the reception of the Eucharist, or is it a prayer for the daily sustenance of our lives? And it's really unclear what that really means. But what it does mean is that in some way, shape, or form, we are asking not only for the sustenance of God's life within us today, but also every day. And so it is a prayer, in a sense, for a union between ourselves and the living God, a union between ourselves and as many of the fathers of the Church reflected in, in uh, a union with the Eucharistic Lord in our daily lives. It's part of the translation now, or part of the uh, theological understanding now, of the whole notion of the final words of the New Testament, Come, Lord Jesus. Many theologians see the word, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, at the end of the, of the New Testament, as reflective of this verse in the Gospel, in, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, in the Gospels. Our daily bread, Come, Lord Jesus, um, are, are interpreted in many cases um, as a Eucharistic plea. And uh, St. Francis of Assisi actually saw this in the Lord's Prayer as a prayer for the Eucharist, as a plea for the Eucharist. So it is not kind of a modern necessarily or contemporary reconstruction of an ancient text. What it, what it really is, is, is legitimately ambiguous simply because they don't know what the word means. It appears nowhere else. And, uh, and so they interpret it as an ongoing a petition for this, our sustenance, and we may say the sustenance of the body or the sustenance of the spirit of the human person. 
And the tendency and the weight of the arguments seem to be that it is, in fact, a Eucharistic line and, and one that is reflected once again in the final words of the New Testament, Come, Lord Jesus. It then goes on, Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgin, forgive one who is in debt to us. And, uh, and, and I think that here, here we find, too, that we're not drawing a proportion that please forgive me in proportion to how I forgive others. It would be a sorry shape if that was the prayer we were asking the Lord, if he restricted his forgiveness to our capacity to forgive someone else, um, then that really is, uh, we'd be in trouble. Um, Because forgiveness is not, and this is something I think people struggle with all the time, forgiveness is not an act of the will. Forgiveness is a change of heart. And so we can't grit our teeth, close our eyes and say, all right, I forgive this person. Um, Because that's not necessarily so. How do you feel in your heart? What does your heart say about that person? Do you wish them well? Do you truly let the injury that they have inflicted upon you pass away and no longer be a part of the negativity or the darkness of your own life? No, we're asking for for unlimited forgiveness from God and mirrored and reflected in the paltry kinds of forgiveness that we are capable of in this life. We are not making it an equation or a quid pro quo. And then he says, and do not put us to the test. Um, it It is a plea to the Lord um, to deal with us gently. We know that in our lives, that uh, th- that that in 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 our lives, we we face difficult things over and over again, and we know that we would rather not face serious temptations and serious difficulties. It is, in a way, kind of discouraging for people to say, "Well, God does not tempt us; uh, allow us to be tempted." beyond our capacity. And I think that there might well be a a general skepticism concerning that, because there are times that even though the act of the will is involved, it is seriously restricted and seriously restrained by the power of the moment and by the power of the circumstances. And, uh, And so it isn't always easy to say to ourselves, that, oh yeah, no, um, no, God wouldn't let this happen to me if I couldn't handle it. Um, so it remains in the realm of the mysterious, really, this idea of lead us not into temptation or do not put us to the test. We know that God allows us to be tempted. Um, certainly all you have to do is is to read the book of Job in the Old Testament when God says to Satan, go and do what you will, but don't harm him. Um, God allowed Job to be tempted. Job is the great example of the hero who was uh, able to resist succumbing to the temptation of the Lord. And, uh, of course, Jesus in the temptations in the desert is the great example of the heroic overcoming of the power of Satan in our lives. Not all people are so heroic, however, and that there are times, for instance, when it seems that temptation overwhelms all else in our lives. 
And, uh, and so it is for us not a clear-cut, not a black-and-white situation, which is why in the gospel it says, please don't let this happen to us. Please don't put us in those kinds of situations. God put Job in the situation with Satan, and, uh, and, the, gospel, and, the, and the Old Testament book of Job tells us so. And, uh, and, and Jesus even says to Peter, I'm praying for you that, you know, that when these temptations come, you'll, you'll overcome them. It's not saying, you know, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it for you or don't, or don't avoid it because, um, somehow or other you can slide out from under it. No, he's saying you need prayer and you have my prayer to help you to be strong enough to resist it. I think that when we get into this, we get, it's a great discussion today, but it's a discussion that is filled with all sorts of ambiguity. And we can say, well, God never tempts anyone. Well, specifically, of course, that's true. Um, but God does, in some way, shape, or form, take us to places in our lives where we are tempted, and powerfully so. And in that is somehow or other the fragility of the human spirit, the fragility of the human person, is oftentimes seemingly crushed by the weight of the temptation. The grace of God is always there. We know that. Um, we, we know, for instance, that we can never say that accepting temptation, a, a caving into temptation in our life, is a lack of grace. This was the great debate of, with the Jansenists in the 17th century. Um, when Robert, Robert Arnault, at a great debate at the Sorbonne, um, was asked, why did Peter deny Christ? And his response was, because he lacked sufficient grace not to. And that was when they therefore decided that Jansenism was a form of Calvinism, and it slowly and gradually, in many different ways, started to become condemned, although it was never actually condemned as a whole itself, only pieces and parts were. And a lot of that through a later articulation of it by Michel Dubay. But the fact of the matter is, is that it always has remained a murky place in the life of grace and a murky spot in our relationship with God and our relationship with the divine being. We should not truly, I suppose, tamper with the words of the Gospels. Um, and, uh, and we know that there's ambiguity in translations and so forth. But just in the very depth of the human spirit and in the very foundations of the human world, we know. We know from the book of Job that God leads, led Job into temptation in a way by giving Satan power over him. Um, and we know, for instance, that in the end, it was the vindication of Job and uh, the rewarding of his virtue and his goodness. Um, and so we have for us the great and shining example reiterated in the story of the temptations of the Christ when he himself then said, Be gone, Satan. And when Satan had left, we're told in the Gospels, the angels came and ministered to Jesus because of the exhaustive nature of his fast, but also his resistance to the presence of evil. So when we look then at the Lord's Prayer, what we find is a particularly Christian dimension, specifically in the addressing of God as Abba, as Father. And then we also ask, we acknowledge his holiness, 
We, we ask for his will to be done in our lives. We ask for the daily sustenance of his presence and his Eucharistic presence. We beg for the benevolence of the forgiveness of our sins and in a paltry way reveal that, that we know something of what that is because of what we ourselves are capable of doing. And finally then we ask him to spare us from the great temptations of life uh, in, in order that through the power of his presence and through the power of his grace, we might be able to come then into the glory of the kingdom for which we prayed at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.